Welcome to the very first episode of The Pursuit of Precision, The Science Advancing Individualized Medicine. This inaugural episode is going to be a good one. I'm your host, Kathy Werzer. I'm a broadcast journalist based in the state of Minnesota in the USA with a keen interest in the science of genomic medicine. Many of you who've made genetic research your life's work know how the great strides made in genomics have enhanced our understanding of disease and the role genetics plays in it. But what is the role of environmental insults on disease development? It's a fascinating question. Welcome to the Exposome. Think about everything you've been exposed to over your lifetime, the chemicals, the pollution, radiation, biological agents, the nutrients in food. Well, there's a new frontier in individualized medicine that measures those exposures, identifies their biological pathways in the body, and ultimately how they trigger disease. It's called the exposome. Two guests with a deep background in exposomics are here. Dr. Konstantinos Lazaridis is the Carlson and Nelson Endowed Executive Director of the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic. In addition to his research in exposomics, he's also a consultant in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, Department of Internal Medicine, with a joint appointment in the Department of Clinical Genomics and a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. From London, we are so happy that Dr. Paulo Vines joins the conversation. He's the Chair of Environmental Epidemiology at Imperial College London, and he leads the Exposome and Health Track at the MRC Center for Environmental Health at Imperial College. Gentlemen, welcome. It is just such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure having you both here. You know, doctors, I think the general public may be surprised to hear that genetics plays a role in only about 10 to 15% of disease. And that's where the study of the exposome comes in. Dr. Lazaridis, how might an exposomic framework help us understand disease development? You know, we all know that we have a genetic profile that um, makes us susceptible to disease. But what actually we believe more and more these days is that our exposures through a lifetime are probably critical to our disease we develop. And so I think this is an area where we like to see more work done in different diseases. And that's uh, the focus of our center for the coming decades. I'm curious here, uh, Dr. Vines, when you talk to other individuals, uh, maybe lecture, how do you explain the exposome? I think this uh, requires some history. I've been working a lot, uh, for example, with the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is a branch of WHO, the World Health Organization. And uh, we have done research on the environmental causes of disease for decades. But uh, there were limits uh, in uh, the approach we used. And uh, in fact, uh, not many carcinogens, for example, have been uh, discovered in recent decades because uh, the tools we, we used were limited, inaccurate, uh, and also we were studying uh, single exposures uh, and single diseases at the time. More recently, we, we have uh, uh, realized that uh, diseases are, first of all, the consequence of uh, uh, lifetime exposures. So there is a life course component. And second, uh, what counts uh, is uh, exposure to a multiplicity of uh, chemicals, uh, um, physical uh, agents, uh, microbes, uh, and so on. So the, the exposome uh, is uh, this concept of uh, multiple agents uh, you are exposed to in a lifetime, uh, starting with uh, conception in practice. Uh, 
I think that the exposome is the sum of these two concepts, uh, uh, life course exposures and the totality of exposures, if you like. Dr. Lazaridis, you know, there's uh, been environmental factors have been linked to other disease in the past, you know, cancer, heart disease, lung illnesses, that kind of thing. What's the current understanding of the most established relationships between health and exposomics? Yes, Kathy, you're right. You know, over the last several decades, a lot of work has been done to make associations between exposures and cancer or particular exposures and, and, and other non-cancer diseases. But most of those studies were focusing on epidemiological assessment surveys from patients. And we know that although there have been significant outcomes from those efforts, still those were studies where we didn't measure exposures in the bloodstream or in urine or other compartments to understand these associations. We know, for example, that smoking leads to lung cancer, radon exposure leads to lung cancer, asbestos exposure leads to some forms of, of lung cancer and the likes. But now we have something different. Now we have affordable testing that is accurate and we can expand this to many people to see what happens in our bloodstream, what happens in our urine, you know, and other uh, samples, and start making specific associations of particular exposures that we can detect with some tests to what the outcomes of, or the disease are. And I anticipate in the coming decade to do more work in that particular space because methodologies now are more available, more affordable for many investigators, for organizations to make those measurements and start building those relationships to the point that we can see how multiple exposures maybe contribute to specific diseases beyond what we were thinking before, one exposure, one outcome. And so that will bring a lot of novel opportunities of how we understand exposures lead to disease and how we can address the therapeutic approaches we like to think along the lines to stop this process and improve health or prevent disease. Dr. Vienes, what are the comparisons between what Europe is doing and the United States is doing when it comes to the exposome, the adaptation of this? Europe, uh, particularly the European Commission, has invested much into the exposome. The European Commission with uh, calls for, for grants, uh, but also single nations. So for example, France is investing very much. The French government has created several groups of uh, exposome research in different cities. In fact, the idea of the exposome was coined in Europe, an agency for research on cancer, but it was quickly transferred to the United States by Martin Smith, Steve Rappaport, Gary Miller. Now there are a few important centers also in the United States, but probably in the United States, what is more advanced from my point of view is uh, exposure assessment uh, based, uh, for example, uh, on uh, spectrometry. The center at Columbia is, is quite important. Uh, in Europe, we have uh, perhaps a broader spectrum of uh, approaches uh, to the exposome. I'm so glad you brought up Dr. Miller because he was one of the speakers at the 2022 Center for Individualized Medicine's conference on the exposome. And mm -hmm. during his remarks, he talked about a paradigm shift 
that's needed in the biomedical and the environmental health science communities to, to move the work forward. Do you agree that there needs to be this paradigm shift and what might it look like? Yeah, in a way, uh, it is needed uh, to overcome the limitations of uh, traditional epidemiology, uh, as we said before. On the other side, uh, I'm a, a, a little, I wouldn't say skeptical, but prudent, uh, in the sense that we are building the tools uh, of the exposome. We have to consolidate them. We, we do not have a clear connection between theory and practice. So the exposome is certainly a theory based on the concepts I, I described before. And then we have a number of practices, uh, uh, but we need a lot of uh, replication and better technical appraisal of the tools we, we use. Well, there has been a, an amazing technological revolution, which is uh, based on uh, things like uh, metabolomics, epigenetics, proteomics, uh, transcriptomics, mutational spectra. All of that is, is wonderful. It, it is fantastic. But uh, we are still in a phase of validation, and the cost of such uh, technologies uh, is high. So it is not always possible to apply them in large population studies. We are still in a phase of transition, and uh, we have proof of principle, but the field uh, is needed, but it is not uh, consolidated yet. Dr. Lazaridis, what do you think of this? I think this is right. You know, we have to think about what happened with the human genome, correct? It was a tremendous effort of many governments to be able to deliver a sequence of the human genome, and it took a lot of time. And this was almost 20 years ago. More recently, we got the full sequence of the human genome, which we thought, you know, we had it all, but it was not. And so uh, it takes time for these methodologies to be applicable and affordable and to be tested over time. Uh, my hope and anticipation is the same It's going to happen for the exposome. What we know about the exposome today and what methodology we have today, they will only improve over time. And then we have to develop, uh, if you will, an equal project that the human genome, where we can have a reference point, where we can all agree what we can measure, what are the methodologies, what are the standards. And so when everybody or someone wants to do the similar work, there will be a reference point of what methodology we used and how those findings correlate with the findings of others. We also have to do a replication. If we find something with one population and one disease in Europe, we have to replicate this in the United States and see whether the associations we're finding are similar or comparable. I did have the opportunity to study bile in a subset of patients uh, with rare liver disease in Europe through my collaborators and in the United States. And we find similarities and differences which reflect the diet to some extent or the exposures. That's what we like to build in the next five years. More studies, understanding the methodology, creating the standards, developing the framework, and then providing to the investigators the opportunities to do the work. That's what is needed in order for us to create the pipeline and the basic designs that will help us build better understanding of exposures. Dr. Bines, uh, what about that? You know, there are always challenges when you're exploring the cutting edges of something new. As you know, there is such an incredible amount of data involved with exposomic studies. You know, is there, is designing studies potentially problematic for researchers in this field? Oh, yes, they are. Because, uh, usually, uh, the amount of data you have, uh, for single individuals, uh, 
is much greater than the size of the study. This is a strictly statistical problem, but for every single individual, you, you may have uh, literally hundreds of thousands of uh, pieces of information or variables, whereas uh, individuals recruited in the study may be in the hundreds or in the thousands. So there is a disproportion between uh, the, the sample size and the information you get for each individual, which, which creates a a huge statistical problem of uh, false positives, for example. So the study design is a, is a problem, and it is a problem also because of the cost of the tests. So we have to develop more clever study designs to, to overcome both problems, so sample size and costs, uh, which is not uh, easy. But costs uh, are going to decrease because of technological development. So I'm sure that uh, in the next five years, we will have uh, better and cheaper tools for, for the exposure. Dr. Lazaridis, what's the technology that's driving advancements in this field to tackle some of the, the issues that uh, Dr. Vines just pointed out? You know, mass spectrometry, which has been used for these assessments, it's improving. The analytical capacity of these tools becomes even better over time. If you think about uh, what happens with the genome, we were able to sequence one genome at the cost of about 100 million when we started. And now we can do it probably with a thousand dollars or less. And the same will happen probably with the exposome. As we focus in a particular area and we provide incentives to academicians, to institutions, to organizations, and people see the opportunity to learn more and to understand disease and treat disease, Patients that would like to know more about what they're exposed to as we make those associations. Remember, 50 years ago, almost everybody, an adult, was attempt to smoke. Now we don't. And think twice if we have to do this habit. As we understand more about accumulation of exposures and what of those exposures con and how those contribute to disease, we may have second thoughts of how can we prevent this from happening? And we will. You mentioned exposures, and can I dive a little bit deeper into the type of exposures that we're talking about here? Uh, Dr. Vines, uh, maybe this question is a good one for you based on your work in Europe. Because we are talking about the effects of all exposures over a lifetime, does that include the effects of ambient temperatures? And, and I ask that because, as, as you both know, the human body is quite sensitive to temperature change. And as the world heats up because of uh, human-induced global warming, how might the effects of climate change be reflected and its health effects examined using an exposomic framework? The answer is uh, complex <laughs> because, uh, well, on one side, uh, climate change has a number, a multiplicity of effects on health, not necessarily because of temperature or of the effect of temperature on health, uh, on the health of individuals. Apart from uh, acute uh, events uh, like uh, heat waves, uh, we, we all know that uh, mortality uh, has been associated with uh, heat waves, but there are other longer term uh, effects uh, like uh, infectious diseases. Uh, we, we know about the spread of malaria or uh, chikungunya and uh, Zika virus uh, and others. And then we have a more subtle issues. Uh, for example, I've done research on uh, salinization of uh, water in Bangladesh and hypertension related to the sea level rise. But apart from that, uh, I, I think that your question was about the temperature. Yes, uh, I see two possible answers. 
One is uh, the extent of adaptation, uh, the ability of the body to adapt uh, to changing temperatures. There is research uh, in this field. Uh, a PhD student of mine is doing research on uh, adaptation to temperature changes uh, in Brazil because you don't have uh, only the effects of heat waves, uh, acute temporary changes in temperature, but you also have effects of long-term uh, slow changes in temperature. The second answer is about the impact of temperature on chemical exposures. We don't know much, but we know enough uh, to believe that uh, uh, changing temperatures have an effect uh, on the nature of the mixtures we are exposed to. So th there are thousands of chemicals in the air, in water, and in food. The composition of, of these mixtures is affected by temperature. So this is a, literally a, a totally new field of research, and it, it is definitely a genuine uh, exposome type of research. Quite interesting. May I ask a personal question of both of you? There are almost always something that sparks, that ignites within individuals that puts them on a, a chosen path. What was the spark that got you interested in exploring the exposome? Dr. Lazaridis? You're right. There's always a starting point, correct? When I started my faculty appointment at the Mayo Clinic, I was asked to study the genetics of a rare liver condition. And I was doing this for two decades, and we made a lot of interesting discoveries over the years, but we couldn't find an answer. We found a lot of genetic variants, but not a causative genetic variant for this disease. And so we're still looking for those, but it was a point where I was asked to think beyond genetics for other contributors of this disease. And that was the tipping point for me to go and explore the environment and learn about the exposome. And that's how it started. Dr. Vines, what's your story? Yes, I have a couple of stories. <laughs> First, uh, um, uh, as I said before, I've been working uh, for a long time with the International Agency for Research on Cancer. And one of the topics uh, we have addressed uh, for years uh, was nutrition, nutrition and cancer. But dietary questionnaires uh, have a lot of limitations in uh, reconstructing people's uh, habits. So we tried to apply metabolomics, which is a systematic search for metabolites in blood or in urine. And we did studies with Augustin Scalbert, for example, at the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which were quite interesting because they showed that you can identify pretty clearly a spectrum which is in urine which is associated with uh, the intake of coffee, another one which is associated with the intake of wine, a third one uh, associated with uh, apples. Metabolomic studies with uh, spectrometry that were able to characterize uh, people's exposures uh, to different nutritional patterns much better than, than questionnaires, as you can imagine. The second example is about uh, social inequalities. Because uh, I believe that for, for many years, social sciences and, and biological sciences uh, have been kept uh, separate. Uh, there was almost no communication between the two. So people were unable to understand why, for example, mortality is much higher in the more deprived people. 
you find eight years of difference uh, or 10 years of difference uh, in uh, uh, life expectancy between uh, the most deprived and the least uh, deprived. Why is that? Well, it is explained uh, partly by uh, personal habits uh, like smoking, but this is not uh, the whole explanation. And we have done research uh, using, uh, once again, uh, like others, particularly Dr. Horvat in California, the so-called biological clocks. That is, you, you can look at uh, methylation of DNA, changes in, in DNA uh, in gene expression. And these allow to build uh, biological clocks that show that some people have accelerated age compared to their chronological age. And we found that not only lower socioeconomic position, but also unemployment, or shift work or poor conditions at work accelerate people's biological age. So I, it was really striking to find these differences. The socioeconomic elements to the exposome, I think, were quite a surprise to those in attendance at the Mayo Conference this year. And maybe Dr. Lazaridis, you can join in on the conversation. I think people were surprised. Would you agree? Yes, that's right. I mean, people who have uh, followed the field, they probably knew this, but it was a, a surprise for many attendees. And I think creating this awareness to uh, scientific groups and to the public, I think are very important. Because what we realize also, it's not only those exposures that have an effect, but also the way that you know this goes to the next level of how people interact because of exposures and how this affects their biological works and how those exposures may affect how we behave and how we react, it's crucial. Related to this, what do you think has the biggest potential to impact health when we talk about exposomics? And maybe, Dr. Lazaridis, you can take that question first, and then I'll, I'll throw it over to uh, Dr. Vines. I think we need to understand more about exposures and how they uh, interact with disease. Now, we, we also realize that the human body is resilient and has a lot of redundant systems to escape exposures and risks. As humans, we have been exposed to many catastrophes over thousands of years, and still we survive, correct? But at the same time, almost all of us, we're going to be susceptible to something we're exposed to, and those are going to be different things. What ideally we would like to find out is who is susceptible to what exposures. For example, we know that for some people, to iron or to copper leads to significant disease from which they may die from. If you take 100 people, not everybody will be susceptible to those elements, but some people they will. And so being able to identify who is susceptible to particular chemical, for example, I think will be crucial for us to define systems to prevent development of disease. We know today who are the people, and we can genetically understand, who are susceptible of accumulating iron. And so we try to remove the iron from their body that prevents them from having disease. If these individuals are not exposed to iron, there will nothing happen to them for what we know about hereditary hemochromatosis. But they do because iron is very prevalent in the environment. I envision the same will happen with other exposures because we're going to understand who is susceptible for a particular exposure and then we'll try to be able to mitigate that the same way we do this for Aiden or for asbestos or for other things. 
my dream is, you know, 10 years from now, when you have your doctor's visit for a preventive appointment, someone may tell you, you know, you ate this particular food the day before, or you are accumulating this particular chemical, and we need to measure, to monitor this over time, because this particular exposure may lead to fatty liver or to diabetes or to maybe to cancer. And I think that it will be you know, very important to be able to do, but it will not happen in the vacuum of the genome. We have to assess the host genetics and the host exposures and how those may interact. And that will be a significant advancement in my mind. Dr. Vines, what do you think about what Dr. Lazaridis just outlined? I essentially agree. As Dr. Lazaridis said before, most diseases do not have a genetic or a strong genetic component. There are gene-environment interactions. That is the effect of weak genetic predisposition over environmental exposures. So it is the interaction of the two which counts. And also what are called polygenic scores or polygenic inheritance based on multiple gene variants. But apart from that, uh, I would like to stress also vulnerability coming from other sources uh, in addition to, to genetics, uh, including weak polygenic uh, genetic predisposition. You, you may have come across uh, the term of syndemic. It was coined by a person who studied AIDS, but then it was uh, mentioned again by the editor of, of The Lancet, Richard Horton, in relation to COVID. And uh, syndemic means that diseases do not come in isolation, but you have, in a way, cluster of, clusters of diseases in the population. For example, the people who were most affected by COVID were people, as you know very well, uh, with hypertension, with obesity and uh, cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, uh, but also the most uh, deprived. So there is this uh, combination of uh, previous diseases, uh, uh, usually non-communicable diseases, uh, chronic diseases, plus uh, the social deprivation. The conclusion by Richard Horton, the, the editor of The Lancet, was that, uh, paradoxically, to prevent uh, the effects of next pandemics, uh, we have to invest into non-communicable diseases and uh, into poverty, to reduce uh, poverty, reduce inequalities. So I agree that there is a effect of chemical exposures, but we shouldn't forget about both the social vulnerability and the effect of the non-communicable diseases. So, so it is a, a, the whole history of the life of, of an individual that uh, uh, increases vulnerability. This is very exciting. It really is an exciting topic. Dr. Lazaridis, what do you think Mayo Clinic's role might be in continuing to advance the understanding of this topic? We spent the last uh, two decades to understand the genetics of different diseases. Uh, now we're doing a lot of work to understand the genetics of uh, populations at large. We're gathering a lot of genetic data. And we know that this uh, exercise or this effort alone uh, will not lead to uh, all the answers for disease. So for now, we know that specific, you know, we can detect specific mutations for specific uh, Mendelian diseases to prevent disease such as for breast cancer, rare forms of colon cancer, uncommon forms of hyperlipidemia. 
we're going to develop polygenic scores where we'll say, well, let's put together a number of genes that may predispose to disease. And that will be something we're working on as we speak. But those efforts with the genetics alone will not lead to all the answers. So we need to bring the exposome to research, to investigate this and invest in that space. And then as we make progress, I would love to see the exposome becomes part of a screening clinical test that will have applicability to understand the biology of an individual from the point of exposures and how those exposures with a genetic profile may predict disease development. I think for us to have a way to do this systematically and organized for research studies, that's the, the next frontier. And then as we do that, I, I would like to see this coming as part of our practice. Dr. Vienes, I'm wondering, would you see this resonating with the general public once they learn more about this? Do you see it uh, resonating perhaps? Well, uh, I think so, because in a way, the development of, of such tools and the ability to develop uh, uh, individualized medicine and prevention increases uh, awareness uh, among the public and, and also hope that uh, medicine and prevention will become more effective. I think that uh, the messages are not easy to convey because uh, there are still limits in what we can predict about uh, individuals. We, we can predict at the population level or in subgroups, but uh, uh, prediction in individuals with exceptions is still quite limited. So it, it is a trend. And personally, I believe, uh, for example, that proteomics might be quite uh, promising is just a guess. So we will come probably uh, to a point where we are really able, as uh, Dr. Lazaridis was saying, to tell a single individual, we can individualize uh, preventive efforts in your case, but we are far from that. And uh, we have to engage in a conversation with the public explaining both the promises and the expectations, but also the current limitations, particularly the gap between individual and, and uh, population. Observations in populations or subgroups and outcomes in single individuals, which, by the way, is uh, the norm also in clinical medicine, because uh, also randomized trials uh, for drugs have been uh, done in populations and not necessarily the same outcome applies to single individuals. You're nodding your head, Dr. Lazaridis. No, this is true. We develop clinical trials and we study 100, uh, 200 individuals, maybe more sometimes uh, if we can afford doing it. And then based on this small population, we define guidelines and we try to treat an individual one at a time. And many times we don't achieve the goal because each one of us is different. And so that's the struggle in medicine. But I think conceptually, we understand it and we like to invest and we have done so as a society to understand this better. Of course, there are diverse populations where we don't have enough genetic data. We don't have data from large numbers of non-Caucasians to talk about genetic variation and what this means and how we can learn more about it because diverse groups, they may have different genetic profiling and we have to be cognizant of that before we apply therapies. And so this is an ongoing effort, which I hope we can make more progress in the coming years. You know, Dr. Lazaridis, I started with you. I will end with you. What would you like listeners to take away about this topic, exposomics? What would it be? 
I think that two, two decades ago was a concept, but I'm very optimistic that it will become a theme for which investigators, organizations, and the government, both in Europe and the United States, you will invest more and probably uh, across the globe because uh, all of us were sensitive about the environment, climate change, and, and, our, and our diet. And I think the public, rightly so, wants to know more about exposures. And we think conceptually they contribute to disease, aging, chronic disease, cancer. And we need to pay more attention because genetics alone will not be able to give us the answers. And so I am a possibilitarian, meaning that I'm thinking about possibilities and opportunities. And I think we, we need to do this type of work. I will remember that phrase, possibilitarian. I like that. This is fascinating science. I'm so excited about this. And I appreciate the time you both took to join us here on this inaugural episode of The Pursuit of Precision, The Science Advancing Individualized Medicine. We hope that you enjoyed this first podcast episode. If you have questions or comments about what you heard today, do send us an email. It is precisionpod, P-O-D, precisionpod, at mayo.edu. And for goodness sakes, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We will have future conversations about a number of different topics in precision medicine. I'm Kathy Worzer. Until next time, here's to your health and well-being.